0: are watching Metal Exchange, an interview series presented by Shift Cole. Today's guest is Jeff Deist, president of the Mises Institute. He recently said the Fed's inflationary policy is state-sponsored terrorism. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me. How are you, buddy?
1: I'm excellent. Thank you, Mike.
0: Well, we came across uh, – or I came across this speech that you did not too long ago. I think it was at the Ron Paul Institute, and uh, the title was Inflation is State-Sponsored Terrorism. And I thought, we need to talk about this. Now, some people are going to say, eh, maybe a little bit of hyperbole or mm-hmm. no.
1: Well, it's low-grade terrorism at the moment, but it could quickly morph into – outright terrorism, I think. And what I mean by terrorism is, I mean, first of all, it's it's an official state policy right. of the United States government, both on the fiscal and monetary side. And I won't make any neat distinctions about how somehow monetary policy is not part of the government. In my view, it is. Of course. Uh, and of course, this is happening on both the fiscal and monetary side. And so low-grade inflation, which I we're arguably experiencing now and in, in the 8 to 10 People listen to Peter Schiff more like 15% range, right? Uh, causes a lot of uneasiness and fear and worry and a lot of indecisiveness, and it causes a lot of real problems for businesses who are trying to plan things like their future and supply chain and shipping and distribution, and especially when some of that requires locking in, let's say, six month or one year or two year contracts. Uh, all of this causes a lot of discomfort and uneasiness, and that's a form, in my view, of low grade terror.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: If you go back in history though, during episodes of hyperinflation, and there's all kinds of e- examples we could use for that, it causes outright terror in that the the population quickly breaks down and we see a lot of uh, you know, outright poverty. We see a lot of hunger and privation. We see a lot of violence in the streets we see a lot of protest, Uh, we see a lot of inhumanity, and we see a real moral degradation of the population during times of uh, extreme hyperinflation. And Mike, you know, uh, you know as well as I am, uh, as well as I do, that Americans are not nearly as tough as, let's say, their great grandparents who went through the Great Depression. Uh, We're pretty much well fed and we live in in pretty nice material circumstances for the most part. And if you took that away it, it, over this, just the course of of a few days or a few months, I think we would see a very unruly populace.
0: Yeah, I mean, you can kind of even look at what we saw during the early days of the lockdowns with things like toilet paper. You know, you, you had people waking out just about that. We're not even talking about walking into a store and, and not being able to get, you know, basics, milk, eggs, bread yeah absolutely and that that's what inflation does is it creates
1: a sense that the sand is shifting underneath your feet and either the money you have saved if you're fortunate enough or the money you're earning if you're fortunate enough uh may not be enough and so Mm -hmm. that sends off some alarm bells and sets some neurons in the back of our pine brains firing and it makes us very anxious and uneasy and i think that's that's uh, not the role of government and society. to Put it mildly, it should be there to protect property rights and provide a stable form of currency.
0: Right. I mean, I think, and, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, the policy, kind of the, the stated policy of, of central banks, it's not just the Fed, the ECB has the same policy. It's basically, we need to have 2% inflation. I don't know where they came up with 2%. It's like this magic number. Mm-hmm. And, and I would argue that even that is pernicious you know just the idea that you're you're somehow supposed to devalue the money which is what we're talking about two percent every year seems crazy to me even even from the get-go you know when you look at the, the good policy
1: mm-hmm. well there's this weird distinction if we look at let's say our own personal savings
2: mm-hmm.
1: between stocks and bonds or mutual funds or real estate or uh, precious metals or things we might hold, and then the more liquid form of our savings, our net worth in the form of actual dollars. Uh-huh. What if there was an express policy by the U.S. government to make sure your house or your mutual funds or your stock portfolio devalued at least 2% every year? Right. Like, what the hell are you doing? that That's my nest egg. But somehow that liquid portion, that dollar, well, that's okay. And I just saw that idiot, Brad DeLong, writing the other day. Oh, you know, inflation's not so bad. There's an upside and and you know, it's really how you stimulate the economy. And yeah, you know who doesn't have to worry about 9 or 10% inflation? People whose income rather earned or unearned on the finance side is more than 9 or 10% right. growing every year. Right? I mean, but for right. most people, you're not getting that kind of raise in your job. You're not, you know, your small business is not going up 15% a year. That, that you know, so this idea that 2% a little bit of poison is good, right? but a lot of poison is bad, I think is, is nefarious. And once you start to get up into, let's say, 7%, uh, and, and I think it's much higher than they admit, but let's just sure. say 7%.
0: We'll go with the government numbers.
1: Yeah. yeah. The rule of 72 tells us, well, that means prices double about every 10 years, houses, cars, bread, milk, whatever it might be. And I guess that's okay if your income's more than doubling every 10 years, but I suspect for most people,
0: it's not. Right. And and there's this myth that I hear, I hear this a lot out in kind of the mainstream financial media that, well, you know, it's really okay because ultimately it balances out because You know your income's going to increase along with the prices. So in the end, it's a wash. So you really shouldn't complain about it that much. And I guess to some degree, it is true. We do see incomes rising. But if you look at the recent numbers, real incomes have been falling for the last year and a half. So I think even that is a myth, at least in the short term.
1: Yeah, real incomes, I think probably are falling, certainly since COVID. Mm -hmm. We have to understand that What COVID did was it sent a lot of people home, and those people, that is per se necessarily deflationary in the sense that businesses were producing fewer goods and services. People were consuming fewer goods and services. They weren't going out to dinner. They weren't traveling. They weren't uh, doing all the things they might do in their work. Working day lives when when you know as they did pre covid so the the natural tendency of all that is deflationary plus whenever there's a crisis whether it's a, a pandemic type health crisis or an economic crisis or a, or a terrorist crisis whatever the natural tendency of people is to hold larger cash balances mm-hmm. because crisis means uncertainty am i going to have my job what does this mean for me 6 months down the road maybe we right. shouldn't take that fancy vacation Maybe we should, you know, hold off on going out to eat every night or whatever it might be. That's that's perfectly natural. That's actually salutary for the economy because that's sending a signal that that money is more dear liquid cash money. Let's say you might have to move suddenly or have a deposit for a new apartment. Mm -hmm. Liquid cash money is more valuable and hence prices should be relative to those dollars should be going down, right? People hold larger cash balances they're actually doing something economists don't understand this for the most part but they're that's actually beneficial to society because you're making your your neighbors dollars worth more because you're effectively taking some of yours out of circulation and right. in a sense you're reducing the money supply mm-hmm. so what do governments do whenever there's a crisis they do everything in their power on both the fiscal and monetary side to overcome this exceedingly natural human tendency Uh, towards deflationary activity during the crisis. So, you know, forget the Fed and all of its Mm -hmm. balance sheet expansion in this sort of roundabout way that they provide a a market for treasuries that might not otherwise be there and and help keep those rates down. Forget all that because that's kind of circular and complex. Just look at Congress. You know, Trump and Biden, they both signed off on huge Mm – huge stimulus bills that was cash money brand new newly created dollars on the fiscal side that went to state local governments it went to private companies uh like airlines for example who came out of the pandemic with more cash on their balance sheet than they went into it which is crazy if you think about all those planes parked in the desert not flying Mm. isn't that interesting how airlines came out in better shape on their balance sheets
0: hmm nice Uh,
1: (laughs) Went directly to to individuals in the form of those stimulus checks. It went uh, directly to businesses in the form of PPP loans to pay people to not come to work and produce goods and services. So you put seven trillion dollars of of cash, cash, as they say in the accounting world, uh, into the economy, and people start spending it. You know, you don't have to be an economist, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand. Uh, that this is inflationary, but the problem is, is, of course, even in the super modern digital world of today, there's no magic button anyone can press that increases everyone's cash balances by the same proportion instantaneously. Right. It always flows across the economy unevenly, and it always has political favoritism at the outset. Mm-hmm. How did the Kennedy Center, the music venue <laughs> in Washington, D.C., get a huge chunk of Changed for upgrades uh, in a stimulus in a COVID stimulus bill. Well, because uh, some politicians put it in there. That's why.
0: Right. Yeah. You know it's crazy too? Uh, I just uh, wrote an article about this a, a week or so ago. They're still handing out stimulus money from from COVID. Like there's still money in those accounts that's being doled out even as we speak. And in fact, the Biden administration in its most recent supplementary budget, they asked for more pandemic related money. So there's still, you know, they're still stimulating based on the pandemic that Biden told us was over. So it's it's uh, it's all pretty crazy when you when you boil it down. Um I want to kind of circle back a little bit to the the kind of moral and social decay that you mentioned that that stems from this. And of course we're in a very divided world right now uh, if you look at the the political dynamics and, and a lot of tension out there, I think. Um what do you think would happen? If we really do see the, and I think there's the potential for this, that kind of economic meltdown, um, either, I mean, it could go either way. We could do the hyperinflation or we could do, um, you know, all the bubbles pop and we have the economic crash or combination thereof. How can, how do you see this impacting what is already kind of a divided, divided nation?
1: Well, it's frightening in the sense that just a few years ago, I mentioned this in my talk during the Trump years. We were fed a lot of really good news about the economy. Inflation was low and the job market was robust and GDP was growing in this net. And you and I might argue that that was artificial and Mm -hmm. uh, not real, not based on real actual productivity gains, increasing profits and capital accumulation, um, which from our perspective would be how you really grow an economy. But let's just say the public perception was such that the economy was good
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and booing. Um, And yet, even during those years of the Trump years, we were obviously very, very divided over Trump and other things. Right. So Bob Murphy pointed out a couple of years ago at an event down in Orlando, wow, you know, if we're at each other's throats when it's like this, imagine if there's another crash like 08. Mm -hmm. What, you know, what would that do to the political landscape? Well, I think we'd see a lot of scapegoating. Of course. You have to understand that really people under... Really, anyone who's a baby boomer or younger uh, so has never known uh, anything like the Great Depression. Right. You know, It's really just the the remaining World War II people who are alive, who are at least in their 80s, but more their 90s, uh, who can remember what we might call real privation in this country. And most of us, uh, I- unless you have fallen into homelessness, most of us have always had some kind of hot and cold running water, at our fingertips, electricity, uh, maybe air conditioning, mm-hmm. maybe some kind of vehicle, even if it was a crappy one in right. uh, and, and some kind of job, uh, you know, some kind of roof over our heads. And by all historical standards, this is unbelievably wondrous right. uh, material wealth. Absolutely. Uh, compared to virtually every human who ever walked the earth. So uh, we don't know a world otherwise. Um And so I fear very much what that would look like. And we do have these events in history, even in modern history, where we can look at at hyperinflationary uh, incidents in places like Argentina Mm -hmm. and then in the late 90s, early 2000s, in places like uh, Zimbabwe. Uh, But, you know, when you look at something more on a broad scale, gold and silver were once. Uh, effectively competing as the world's reserve currency. They were, you know, accepted as money throughout the world for payments uh, for goods and services. And so we have some small examples, like during the Spanish Empire, the 1500s, 1600s, where where there was a devaluation in silver. But for Mm -hmm. the most part, if you look at the dominance of the U.S. dollar, if you look at how central banks all across the world hold U.S. dollars, if you look at investment funds and banks, All across the world hold U.S. dollars. If you look at pension funds, all across the world hold U.S. dollars. Um, If you consider that to buy oil all across the world, you not exclusively, but often need U.S. dollars. Mm -hmm. Uh, You put all that together, and it's very strange because although there's certainly a lot of people rooting for our political downfall in the United States, a lot of the the rest of the world is not so happy with our bullying. Right. Uh, it's not really in their short-term interest anyway to have the dollar devalue, because right. they have plenty of them themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's it's sort of a game of uh, how long can all of this last, and it might last a long time, to be fair. Right. And nobody wants to be caught holding the bag. But you do get a sense if you look at the international flows of gold, for instance. If you look at how the Russians, my God, have have somehow in this bizarre world managed to sell tons of oil and have the ruble, uh, go up in value. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you look at India and China and, and they're, I wouldn't say fraught relationship with the U S but you know, they they, they clearly are looking at Russia differently than we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, you start to say, well, why should the world just go along with this? Why right. should the world just accept us dominion in the financial sense because of its dollar, it's we're starting to look like a paper tiger, I think.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think if you look at some of the underlying dynamics, I think you're right. I think a lot of people think, oh, the dollar's gonna, you know, collapse tomorrow. I think there's a lot of reasons why it won't necessarily. But if you look at some of the dynamics underneath, you do see central banks across the across the world, China. Russia looking at alternative payment systems. They're trying to figure out ways to at least minimize their reliance on the dollar. And, and I think that's going to continue to uh, accelerate as we move forward. And I think the more the U.S. uses its economic power, as, a, as, as you mentioned, as a bullying tool, I think it's going to speed that up. And I think this whole thing with Russia over the last year or so, it has really opened eyes internationally that that maybe we shouldn't rely completely on the dollar that this isn't such a good idea so i think i think you're right i think there's kind of an underlying an underlying rot that a lot of people aren't aware of
1: well one thing about globalization and digitalization of the economy is that flows of money which used to be uh, followed up by flows of gold, right? <laughs> Physical gold on ships yeah. uh, crossing oceans. You know, yeah, that was um,
0: Nixon's big issue. I yeah. mean, that's why he closed the gold window because the yeah. gold was leaving the U.S.
1: But a hundred years ago, you know, g- gold actually moved around. Mm-hmm. Um, but all that's out the window now. You press a button and move. Uh, I don't know if we want to call it money, but uh, apparitions, right. uh, representations <laughs> of money, can move around. And so, you know, we look at. The West's position towards Putin. And it's a lot harder today than it might have been in a pre digital age to sort of ring fence him and his economy and bleed him. You know, these right. blockades aren't working the way we thought they, they would be. I guess I'm finding out that Putin was not invited to the Queen's funeral. Uh, oh. I do know that's a rumor. I don't know that that's true, but that he was, it, it, you know, the, the English made it known that he would not be welcome. And so right. this is the kind of example of, you know, making him an international political pariah is a lot easier than making him an economic pariah, because at the end of the day, he's got some real stuff
2: mm-hmm.
1: form of oil and wheat,
2: right? Natural gas,
1: uh, natural gas underneath the, that frozen uh, mosquito, mosquito tundra <laughs> in Russia, and uh, underneath the uh the ground in Ukraine which he's trying to grab right so you know commodities might have might matter uh a lot more than than we think they will and oil and natural gas might matter a lot more than we think they were going to when we imagine that so-called green energy is going to replace everything it's uh it's uh you know wars tend to crystallize uh things and remind mm-hmm. us of uh, the uh, the more analog reality.
0: Yeah, I tell people all the time. You know, we 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 tend to view everything in terms of money, in terms of of. And again, I don't know if that's even the best term. You know, fiat apparitions. I like that word. Um, but what really matters is stuff. When you get down to it, we're just using this money to move stuff around. So really, when you get down to it, what really matters is what stuff do you have? And I think it's a problem for the U S because I don't know that the U S has as much stuff as it does beyond. Well, we have
1: enjoyed uh, what the French finance minister back after the Bretton Woods period called an exorbitant privilege mm-hmm. uh, for many, many decades in the sense that we have been able to export our inflation and we have right. been able to buy incredibly cheap stuff uh, at Walmart, for example. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of people I guess both on the left and the right uh today there there's sort of a new right which is attacking uh markets and globalism but from a different perspective right and saying that you know all this materialism hasn't been so good for us and there's two elements to that one's a spiritual element mm-hmm. you know what human beings do and that's above my pay grade right uh, it's you know Mises said one time yeah, I- you know, in his book, The Anti-Capitalist Mentality, you know, who, who are we to judge how a man spends his weekend, his free time and money? If he wants to go see uh, a silly drama instead of, listening, you know, reading Shakespeare or something, that's that's on him. You know, right, right. the spiritual side's not up to me. But I, I don't like this this idea that materialism is just this sort of uh, indictment of a society. So, you know, materialism means uh, folks who don't make much money. Can go to Walmart and buy things for five bucks.
0: Right. 10.
1: And um, I think a lot of people who caterwaul about materialism have just never been poor.
0: That's <laughs> <laughs> true. It's, it's easy. It's easy when you can. Uh... Yeah, when you have whatever you want at your fingertips, it's a, you know if if you talk to me, my wife grew up very poor uh, in in rural West Virginia in the mountains, and and uh, you know she has a very different perspective on on stuff than than I do. I grew well, up in pretty upper middle class.
1: But if we look at wealth inequality in America. We tend, again, we tend to focus on money. We tend to say, you know, Bill Gates has how many zeros right. in his net worth? Well, that's not really true because even publicly or privately held stock like Charles Koch, you can't just go sell it, Elon right. Musk. It would plummet. So they don't really have those billions. But second of all, I mean, because of capitalism and because of so called materialism and capital accumulation, uh, you know, let's say you make $40,000 in the US mm-hmm. or the equivalent of US $40,000 in a Western country. I mean, that puts you in the top one upper one, upper, oh, 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 oh of one percent of all human beings who have walked the earth. But more yeah. importantly, and I think this distinction gets lost. You know, I wake up in the morning and I have a reasonable habitation above my head. Mm-hmm. Again, electricity, hot and cold, running water, some clothes, a bed, et cetera. Well, so does Bill Gates. He yeah, he just has a fancier water, whatever. Right. Right. So I get in a car. Maybe Bill Gates has a nicer car. Maybe he has a driver. I don't know and then i go to an office bill gates does the same thing and i mostly kind of stare at a computer all day because like like a significant portion of the u.s populace i i don't have a a, a manual labor job mm-hmm. a blue collar job i have a, i guess what we call a white-collar job and so does bill gates and so you know and maybe i stop at chick-fil-a and bill gates goes to a steakhouse. i have no idea what he does but the right. point is my life is far more like bill gates life than unlike yeah Right. Whereas I think 150 years ago, uh, that was not true. Mm-hmm. You know, the distinction between manual labor and the very wealthy, who you know used to be derided as the idle rich because they were born into it and they didn't particularly work. They might be involved in philanthropy or that sort of thing. I, I think that the average person's life was far, far more unlike a wealthy person's life back then. So capitalism, despite the number of zeros in this bank account, a capitalism has been a A very uh leveling force. Mm -hmm.
0: It's a good point. I mean, you know, think about it. I mean, just the 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 technology that you we're I'm in Florida, you're in Alabama, we're talking to each other. That's that's crazy when you think about it, you know. And Uh, I
1: I don't even pay for Zoom, I just use the free
0: Zoom. Right, right. I pay for it so I can record. (laughs) I'm paying what, like three dollars a month or something. I want to touch on one other, before I let you go, I want to touch on one other kind of uh, economic aspect of inflation that we've kind of we've kind of walked around a little bit, but that's the idea of savings. And obviously, when dollars are inflating or when they're devaluing, uh, people are disincentivized from saving. It's, it doesn't make any sense for me to stick a bunch of cash in a safe because it's not going to buy as much in five years as it will today. And I think on an individual level, we all kind of get why you should save money. Whether we do or don't, I think most people intuitively kind of understand, yeah, it probably is a good idea to save. But I don't think people understand why savings matters in the broader economic sense and why a lack of savings um, actually undermines the economy in the long run. Can you kind of touch on that?
1: Well, it's very human to worry about the future and Mm -hmm. want to save for a rainy day. Sure. It's first and foremost, why should government policy ever thwart things which are innately human? Um, it, it's innately human to want to maybe even put something away for your kids or grandkids if you've got them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So first and foremost, I don't think government policy should should be at odds with human nature.
2: That makes but, sense. But,
1: but beyond that, um, you know, in the current environment of of interest rates, savings is for chumps. Mm-hmm. At least safe savings vehicles. If you can go get three and a half percent on a one-year CD right now, or well, you can't. You can't get that much. You can get two and a half percent. You can get three and a half percent on a ten-year bond, but right. ten-year, uh, you know. But inflation's running nine. Mm-hmm. Well, nine minus two point five. You're losing. You're losing money. You're not even treading water. You're not even yeah. standing still. So you have to go out there and try to chase yields, which I think has moved a lot of money which otherwise would be parked in safer type investments into stock markets and right. real estate markets and juiced things,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, really over this whole 40 years, ever since Greenspan began this lower and lower interest rate policy. Uh, but what's, what strikes me is if you go back to the late 70s and early 80s, the last time admitted CPI was this high, mm-hmm. approaching 10%, uh, a one-year CD, you could go out and get 14 or 15%. So there was a positive delta of about five points for just, you know, a, a very safe, simple savings that, let's say, an old person could avail themselves of. Whereas right. today, as I mentioned, it's a negative six, seven points. Mm-hmm. Why is that? You know, what's what's the explanation for that? I'd love to ask Jerome Powell that because yeah. a lot of economists will waffle on this and say, well, you know, and I, I, I there are some critics of the the Austrian School and the, and the Mises Institute um, who say, you know, you and even free market ones like John Tamney, who say, you guys radically overstate the Fed. It's not that powerful. It's just setting, you know, ceilings and floors, which don't matter because the market's handling all that anyway. And at the end of the day, this is all about the supply and demand for loanable funds and money flows, you know, where it's productive. And yeah, the Fed's this little irritant over here. It's kind of like a minor regulation, but it's not actually driving any of this. So I I I read that argument, I understand it, but I, I don't think uh, you can just go back to 1982 and say, well, the reason people were getting 15% on a simple savings vehicle, and also the reason people were paying 15% on a mortgage mm-hmm. or 18% on a mortgage had nothing to do with Paul Volcker. And that that had nothing to do with the Fed, it was just the supply and demand of loanable funds at the time. Yeah. And since then you know, if, if interest rates are, I guess they've crept up to five now on mortgages. Um, so we're three times as wealthy as we were back when they were 15%. You know, the cost of capital has been, has been reduced, you know, to a third of what it was in 1982, because gee whiz, we're just so much richer and more productive. We've just created so much capital since 1982 that we can afford to, to loan people money at a third of the price we could back there. Look at us. I don't think that's the case, folks. I think the yeah. Fed's got a lot to do with it.
0: Yeah, I agree completely. I I it, you just if you look at the trajectory of what the Fed has done, you know, if you can look at the graphs and you see it. if if you visualize it. So and of course that undermines capital production in the future, which means that we're gonna have, you know, less stuff, ostensibly. So it's a, a big uh sword I'm looking for. Mm. Well,
1: we're, we're consuming <laughs> the future, I think, in a way yeah. that's that's very scary, and putting away less for yeah. the future. So that's so when you're when you're borrowing more and saving less, those are the twin. It's sort of a whipsaw effect. You've got two sides of the same bad coin.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, what's going on at the Mises Institute that people need to know about?
1: Well, uh, we are ramping up for a big event this fall. Uh, out in Phoenix, Arizona, and we're pushing forward on, uh, uh, a lot of new programs. And if you're a, uh, a writer or interested in economics, reach out to us because we are hiring and paying.
0: Oh, that's nice. Absolutely. All right. Well, we will put links to, uh, the Mises Institute on the show notes so people can get in touch. I appreciate you taking a little time out of your day to chat with me. And, uh, I will also link to the, uh, speech that you gave. It's outstanding. People need to read it. We uh, reprinted it over at Shift Gold. And um, again, thank you for all you're doing and all your work. Thank you, Mike.